This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone, the all-in-one language app. With Rosetta Stone, you'll have everything you need to learn a language and use it in the real world. They offer immersive lessons, writing prompts, and engaging activities to prepare you for real-life conversations. You can pick and choose the lessons that work best for you and create a personalized experience that's both fun and engaging. Get ready for life's adventures with 50% off for I Know Dino listeners at rosettastone.com dino. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week in our 226th episode, we have a whole bunch of dinosaur news, including a new dinosaur. Surprise! (laughs) Yeah. I don't know how many weeks in a row we've had them. Many. Most. Yeah. We also have ichnofossils of both a T-Rex tooth mark, as well as some theropod handprints, which are quite unique. And we also have some museum news, some dinosaur stamps and dinosaur coins to talk about. Exciting. Yep. And of course, we have a dinosaur of the day. And this week it is Kaatadokus. Hopefully that's right. It's really hard to figure out how to pronounce Wyoming tribal languages, but hopefully that's right. And then we'll finish up with a fun fact. Usually I don't mention that in the beginning of the show. It's always there. <laughs> yep. <laughs> But before we get into all of that, we would like to thank some of our patrons. And this week, we'd like to thank Scotty, Megan Dixon, Kessler, Tristan Jules, Grandpa Dino, Rhinosaurus, Morgan Eklov, Dr. Eigenbot, Lori, Risa, Kelly, Manda, Laurasaurus, Timmy, James Pascoe, Gabe, and Courtney. And Courtney just joined, so thank you very much. We love our patrons, and as Garrett mentioned at the beginning of the show, that's how we keep this podcast going. So if you want to join the growing community, hang out with us on Discord and all the other perks, then check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. And now jumping into our dinosaur news, our first and only new dinosaur this week. There are other new dinosaurs, but this is the only one we're covering this week because a couple came out right before we started recording, and it's just takes me a little while to digest a new dinosaur. So I'm going to talk about a new ornithopod dinosaur that was found in Argentina, and it was published in Cretaceous Research and written by Penelope Cruzado Caballero and others. And given that it was written in Cretaceous Research, it's fitting that this is from the Cretaceous. Oh. (laughs) Specifically, it's probably from the Santonian, which is about 85 million years ago, and they named it Mahuita cursor Lipong Lef, which is partially based on the local Mapuche language. So Mahuita cursor comes from Mahuita, which means mountain in Mapuche, and then cursor, which is Latin for runner. So it's one of those combinations of a local language and Latin, which really makes everybody confused about how to pronounce it. But it's a cool sounding name. I like Mahuita cursor. Mm-hmm. It's pretty neat. And they named it after mountains with the Mahuita part because it was found in the mountains of Argentina, although those mountains weren't there when Mahuita Cursor was running around. So 
it wasn't really a mountain runner. It's more like a runner that was found near a mountain in present times. Right. <laughs> Makes it easier to run to. Yes, it sure does. And then Lipanglef comes from two Mapuche words, the first being Lipang, which means arm, and Lef, which means light, like light and weight. And <laughs> the reason they named it that is because it has skinny arms. So it's the mountain runner with skinny arms, <laughs> if you have the full genus and species name together. It's closely related to Iguanodontians, but not close enough to have an exciting group name. So they just called it a basal ornithopod, mm. just kind of a general category. There's a lot of those. There are, yes. And a lot of times when they start breaking down these phylogenies to more and more of a degree, there's more and more of these little outgroups that don't fit nicely into the predetermined earlier <laughs> taxa. So this is definitely one of those. It was found partially in the Bajo de la Carpa formation, and it was kind of in two pieces. So there's an articulated torso, and separate from that, there's an articulated arm. So I guess it kind of makes sense that they're emphasizing the arm in one part and then sort of a characteristic of the rest of the body, <laughs> the genus name. So the holotype torso is still in a plaster jacket. They didn't completely excavate it. And I'm guessing that's just so that it stays in that nice articulated state. Whereas if you excavate it, then you lose a little bit of that information potentially. And included with it, I'm calling it a torso. I don't even think that's necessarily a scientific term that you use <laughs> with dinosaurs. But if you think about your own body, which is usually what I do when I'm trying to imagine what parts of a dinosaur we have, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's sort of like the waist or maybe a little bit higher than the waist up through like the shoulders and then a little bit of the neck. So that's kind of the chunk of the dinosaur that they have. So it's a reasonably large piece of it, maybe like 20% that sort of ballpark. And in it, it includes about a dozen vertebrae from the neck and the back, a bunch of ribs, both scapulae, the shoulder blades, and I think a little bit of coracoid in there too, as well as some sternal plates in between the ribs. So that's kind of the torso piece of it. And then since it's still in the jacket, they can really only get at the left side of it. The right side's kind of buried in that plaster casing, which they said was the part that was sticking out of the rock. <laughs> so I think they slapped plaster on top of that side first, then kind of excavated underneath it. And then when they got back to the lab, they decided to uncover the part that wasn't exposed before. So they might have a little bit more information too from pictures that they took out there when it was first sticking out, hopefully. The arm is almost entirely complete, except for some of the wrist and finger bones. So it's a pretty complete and cool looking arm. But unfortunately, they didn't give a full size estimate of the animal. And I think maybe that's because it wasn't fully grown, but the torso chunk is about two feet or 60 centimeters long. And since before I was guessing that that's maybe 20%-ish of the length <laughs> of the animal, I'm guessing if you add the neck, pelvis, and tail, it was probably at least 10 feet or three meters long total. So really not that big. Ornithopods can be pretty massive. If you think about iguanodons and stuff like that, they can be 30 feet easily. They did slice open a bone to count the lags, and they found six total, meaning that it was at least six years old when it died and fossilized. The three newest lags on the outside are spaced much closer together than the ones that are a little bit closer to the center of the bone. And that means that its growth was slowing and that it was probably reaching its sexual maturity. So it was kind of getting near the end of its growth. But remember, you have sexual maturity and then you have skeletal maturity later on. 
And looking at some other features, for example, the vertebrae hadn't fully fused, so it wasn't skeletally mature, meaning that it hadn't really stopped growing. Even though dinosaurs sometimes are skeletally mature and they still grow a little bit more, it's kind of weird. But yeah, we could expect it to grow some more for sure. In addition to having thin arms, the authors say that they also had kind of small muscle attachment points, so it would have had pretty weak arms. <laughs> they weren't just thin, they were also weak. And because of that, they say it would have adopted a, quote, bipedal or poorly quadrupedal posture. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the two options. Yeah, like either it didn't use its arms to hold itself up, or it barely used its arms to hold itself up and didn't do a great job at it. Because of this, as you can tell from the name with the cursor, meaning that it's kind of quick and running, they assume that its hind legs and tail were probably built for speed, and then it was a little bit lighter on the front side, so it was more of like a powerful bipedal runner. But since we didn't find any of the tail or the legs, we can't really say that for sure. So it's kind of a guess that they threw out there in the name, in the genus name. And given that the alternative is that it was both slow and small, <laughs> And that doesn't really bode well in terms of survival. Right. It might be a good assumption that its legs were a little more powerful. Unless it's in a weird habitat and it didn't matter for some reason. Yeah, exactly. You never know what kind of crazy stuff. Like you could think of like Dinochirus where everybody assumed it was going one way and then we find these legs and back. And we're like, what is a big hump yeah. monster? Why does it have these huge claws? <laughs> could be the same with this. And up next, we've got an article from Pierre J, written by Joseph Peterson and Carson Douse, and it's all about some tyrannosaurs eating, which is always a fun topic to discuss. So what happened was, back in 2007, some paleontologists found a hadrosaur, or a partial hadrosaur, and it included a tail vertebra with some tooth marks on it. And given that it's in the Hell Creek Formation in southeast Montana, which is where T-Rex was, give some obvious question marks because not a ton of animals leave big, deep tooth impressions in bone, but T-Rex is definitely one of the strong contenders. Their best guess is that the hadrosaur is an Edmontosaurus, which is one of the biggest hadrosaurs. So good prey for a large carnivore. Yeah, for sure. And I believe Edmontosaurus has been found previously with Tyrannosaurus tooth marks in them but it might have been another large hadrosaur from the area. Not positive. There are some pretty deep gouges in the vertebra, and so in order to do their comparison, the researchers started by looking at the tooth marks of adult theropods from the area that may have had teeth that could have done this kind of damage. So first up, T-Rex, like I said, is the obvious place to go, but they're too small for an adult T-Rex. So they looked at some of the other possibilities of adult animals in the area. They were too big for a dromaeosaur or other small theropods from Hell Creek. They checked them against Dakotaraptor and crocodilians, but crocodilians have teeth that are too round to match the punctures. If you're familiar with what a crocodile mouth looks like, they're almost like cone teeth. They remind me a little bit of like Mosasaur or something like they're just designed to just crush <laughs> through. It could be like crushing through like, um, shells or all sorts of the stuff, but it's really like a pulverizing. At least T-Rex teeth have a little bit of serrations in them and they're designed to slice a tiny bit. But crocodile teeth are really just all about that ripping and just annihilating. <laughs> and then Dakota raptor teeth 
are a little bit too flat or what they say is laterally compressed. So it's kind of the opposite. The crocodilian teeth are too round. The Dakota raptor teeth are too narrow, but the T-Rex teeth are just right. <laughs> the Goldilocks tooth. <laughs> but like I said, they weren't quite the right spacing for an adult T-Rex. So what they did was they started looking at some of the juvenile and subadult T-Rex specimens that they have to see if any of those teeth patterns might match with this probably Edmontosaurus vertebra that they found. So after lining up a bunch of these different maxilla, that's that top part of the mouth where all the big nasty <laughs> T-Rex teeth are mm -hmm. with the vertebra, they ended up settling on an approximate 11 to 12 year old T-Rex as the likely inflictor oh, wow. <laughs> of these marks. Doesn't take long. Yeah. So the researchers said, quote, these results demonstrate that late stage juvenile and subadult tyrannosaurs were already utilizing the same large bodied food sources as adults, despite lacking the bone crushing abilities of adults, end quote. So yeah, even though they may not have been able to really break that vertebra up into a whole bunch of pieces and basically eat it. <laughs> right. They could still do a lot of damage. Yeah, definitely. And then to me, the big question then is, well, did this 11 to 12 year old T-Rex have the ability to take down an Edmontosaurus? Right. Or did it scavenge? Exactly. So based on the position of the tooth marks on the vertebra, they think that the hadrosaur was already dead or at least lying on its side when T-Rex was chewing on it. So you've got to take advantage of it as the T-Rex. Like once it's already laying down. Yeah. An easy <laughs> yeah. meal. Yeah, exactly. Or an easier meal. Which would make you think maybe that it was scavenged. And then they also point out that generally animals don't go straight for the tail. They tend to eat other parts of the animal first before finally getting to the tail. And that might also indicate scavenging. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Maybe the tail's not as tasty or nutritious. And also, you want to make sure that your prey is dead. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> I think also just like getting meat off of a vertebra is a lot more difficult than kind of like around the ribs or maybe like a leg. You have like that big piece of meat right there that you can just bite off a big chunk. Mm -hmm. Whereas with the vertebra, part of the reason it might have those deep gouges in it is because it's not all that much meat. So you're trying to scrape off right. the bit of meat that's actually there. So yeah, they can't really say for sure if a juvenile T-Rex could have hunted an Amontosaurus. I tend to think probably not. Edmontosaurus was pretty massive. Was this an adult Edmontosaurus? Since they don't even know what genus it is, I don't think that they specifically said if it was, it was an adult or not. But my guess is that it was an adult based on how large the vertebra was. It was pretty massive. Right. They did actually, they have a reconstruction of the maxilla of the T-Rex lined up with the vertebra. The vertebra is big enough that the T-Rex would have had to have its mouth at like a gape angle of at least 30, if not like 45 degrees just for the vertebra. So it was like a pretty large vertebra <laughs> compared to the mouth of this animal. And then, you know, in real life, there would have been meat around it. That's the whole point. So it would have had to have its mouth pretty wide open to get around that. So it was definitely in the ballpark of adult Edmontosaurus size. Maybe it wasn't quite fully developed, but it was a big animal. It would be really good to know, though, whether or not it could actually hunt it. Because the question of what a baby T-Rex versus a juvenile T-Rex versus an adult T-Rex eight mm -hmm. is a really interesting one. And we think that they were probably different things, too. Right. Bad news for all prey around. Yeah. All sizes. It would be kind of funny, though, if this lined up with Jack Horner's earlier sort of 
hypothesis that T-Rex might have been a scavenger if maybe like juvenile T-Rexes mm-hmm. were more of a scavenger. And then when they became adults, they became more of a hunter. <laughs> That'd be kind of funny if it ended up working out that way in the end. Yeah. And up next, we have another new named Ichno species, which means that it's named based on something that a dinosaur left an impression of rather than the actual dinosaur material itself. And this was written in the Journal of Paleogeography by Da Ching Li and others. And what they found, as I mentioned at the top of the show, is what might be the first example of a theropod walking quadrupedally. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's, it's something I had never really thought about before. Yeah. But some researchers in Gansu, China, which is pretty much the center of the country, most people would probably call it Western China because all the cities and stuff are on the East Coast. But in any event, there's an area there that's from the Middle Jurassic, which is about 164 to 174 million years ago. And the reason I say it might be the first walking quadrupedal theropod track site is because there are a couple of other track sites with a pair of hands and feet, but the authors talk about them and say they might be just attributed to a crouching theropod because at least one of them also has kind of a pelvis imprint. So it's more like if you had an animal lay down in like, if you imagine stepping in wet concrete or something mm-hmm. and you like kind of lay down in it, you'd have your hands and your feet in it, but you're not really using your hands to walk. It's right. just because that's where they go when you lay down. Whereas this one, what they have is they actually have four hands and four feet. So, and they're aligned in a way that it looks like it's walking. Mm -hmm. So there's that handprint just in front of the foot like you get when you're walking. Because, I mean, we don't really walk quadrupedally. (laughs) But if you do like a bear crawl or something, you'd put your hand out and then you match your foot on that side right up to the back of that hand. And then you reach your hand forward. So they always kind of have that arrangement to them. And that's exactly how these tracks look. I just had an off topic thought. You know how in Hollywood they have the that theater with the uh, stars' handprints in concrete? Mm-hmm. What if somehow those stayed intact somehow, or some of them, and then some species way in the future finds them and thinks that you know, humans walked on their hands because of these? <laughs> yeah, or it was like some crazy animal that's hands were like changing size as it walked along. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Maybe they should add a footprint to it too every once in a while. Like I right think some the of them print. do have it. Oh, really? And then that might be confusing too because your hands and your feet would be very close together because it's just one small block. Yeah, yeah. And like both feet and both hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is weird. Like hopping like a kangaroo or something <laughs> yeah. with the hands hitting the ground. <laughs> so anyway, back to the dinosaur tracks. All of the ones of the dinosaurs kind of laying down apparently are from the early Jurassic, whereas this is from the mid-Jurassic, so they're obviously a little bit different. And they assign the tracks to the Ichnogenus grolider, which was previously described. It's kind of like Eubrontes. It's your typical kind of theropod, three-toed print, but there are some subtle differences. But because they have handprints and because there are some other differences, they created a new Ichno species. So they named it after the area Pingchuan, where it was found. And so the full name of the new Ichno species is Grolider pingchuanensis. So that's the official new name. Like if you find these tracks anywhere in the world, they're already named this guy. And you can (laughs) associate them and know that at least a very similar dinosaur was there doing its thing. Based on the position of the tracks, kind of the distance between them, they think that it was moving very slowly and... The tracks are also pretty deep, so it may have been walking on soft ground, 
which made me think maybe it was kind of using its hands to help. Like if it was soft, mushy ground. Mm-hmm. Like I know I've done that if it was like on a hill. Right, and slippery. Yeah, exactly. You could use your hands a little bit. And it would look weird too if you saw our handprints. Like how how many miles of walking does a human do mm-hmm. before they put their hands down a little bit? Right. <laughs> One of the unique features the authors say is that the gait of the animal was a little bit wider than you'd expect for a theropod. They said that it had a wide straddle gait, which is kind of interesting. Also kind of makes me think that it's trying to, you know, deal with some unsteady terrain, spread out the gait, put the hands down. <laughs> like That's exactly what I do when I'm on slippery or soft sediment. So yeah, I, I kind of relate to this G. pingchuanensis. Interestingly too, they also made a reconstruction of G. pingchuanensis. And in their recreation, it's about 2.7 meters or 8.8 feet long and about 75 centimeters or two and a half feet tall. And that's a lot shorter. <laughs> like that's a weird height to length ratio for a theropod because usually they're a lot taller. So it's like almost 10 feet long, but not even three feet tall. Like that's a very low animal. And that's because in their recreation, they recreated it in that quadrupedal stance. So it has relatively shorter forelimbs as you would expect on a theropod, or at least that's what they're assuming. And then so it's kind of hunched way down to the ground and has kind of a weird posture. So something I never even considered might exist, handprints from a theropod walking. Yeah. We have them now. Pretty weird. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's bound to come up. There's so many dinosaurs. It lived so many years. Yeah, I guess. There's never even every considered Every combination of everything they probably did. Mm-hmm. Speaking of track sites... The New Mexico Museum of Natural History and Science, Central New Mexico Community College, and the New Mexico State Parks Department are working together this spring to photograph, scan, map, and model the Clayton Lake Dinosaur Track site. So all of the photos, scans, maps, and models, they're going to be available through a publicly accessible website, and people can view, analyze, and research them, which is pretty awesome. Most of the tracks are from ornithopods, but there's also footprints from small and large carnivores. Nice. Mm Mm-hmm. It's always good to digitize this stuff. Yeah, then more people can access it and also kind of keeps it safe. Yeah, because it doesn't last forever. Mm -hmm. In Fruta, Colorado, Dinosaur Journey Museum has a new Apatosaurus femur on display. It's six feet, four inches. It was found by the museum when they went on a dig at Rabbit Valley Quarry. It took them four years to excavate and three years to clean. And now anybody can see it. Nice. Good old sauropods. Yeah, Apatosaurus used to be your favorite until Brontosaurus got back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's still up there, though. <laughs> In the UK, the Natural History Museum at Tring has a new free exhibition. And I had to look it up. Tring's kind of in between London and Oxford. I know that's still very vague, but... <laughs> and that exhibition shows off dinosaurs of the British Isles. So visitors can see a cast of a baryonic skull. You can see a complete hypsilophodon and more. They have 15 specimens, eight different species on display. You can do that thing where you compare your height to an iguanodon femur and tibia. You can compare your teeth also to real megalosaurus teeth. Hmm. Although that seems harder to compare yeah, than Yeah, comparing your height teeth. versus teeth. Yeah. You have like a mirror and hold up a replica and like shove it in your mouth. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think they'll let you shove real megalosaurus teeth in your mouth. Was it a real tooth or is it a replica? It said real. Huh. No. If anyone goes, let us know. <laughs> let us know how you compare your teeth yeah. to a megalosaurus tooth. <laughs> <laughs> they also have some special dinosaur events in May. There's going to be dinosaurs from the UK, where paleontologist Paul Barrett talks about dinosaurs, and then mini dinosaur worlds where you can build your own dinosaur diorama. 
Now moving on to the stamps and coins portion of the show. <laughs> the philately and numismatics portion of the show. So fancy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Amanda who shared this one with us. The U.S. Postal Service is coming out with new T-Rex stamps this year. They look pretty cool. There's a few options. There's a baby fuzzy T-Rex. There's a skeletal T-Rex with a baby T-Rex skeleton. And then there's two adult T-Rex depictions uh, that look like they're hunting. And two, I read some mixed things. Some said two, some said all of the T-Rex depictions are of the nation's T-Rex. So Greg Breeding, art director of the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C., designed the stamps, and paleo artist Julius Chitney did the original artwork. There's no dates yet on when the stamps come out. We love his artwork. We actually got to meet him at SVP and got a signed print and bought one of his books, too. Oh, yeah. His book is beautiful. It's really cool, yeah. We're going to have to get a bunch of these stamps. <laughs> and then use them for everything. Yes. <laughs> so in Canada, the Canadian Mint has a new limited edition glow-in-the-dark dinosaur coin that's made of pure silver. It weighs one ounce, and it's egg-shaped. The image on the coin is of a hatching Hippocrosaurus stebengeri, which is a hadrosaur. And these eggshells were found in Canada in 1987 at Devil's Cooley in southern Alberta. They found eggs and embryos. It was also designed by Julius Chitney and reviewed for scientific accuracy by paleontologists at the Royal Tyrol. It glows in the dark, and when you see it glow in the dark, you can see the dinosaur skeleton. It's pretty cool. It is so cool. I'm looking at it right now. It's $120, though. U.S., 140 Canadian, yeah. Oh, man. It's already... Oh, it's sold out already. Yeah. Well, that's probably for the best, because otherwise I'd be tempted to buy it, mm. and I should not be spending $120 on a $20 Canadian coin. Right. They only made 4000 I wonder if they'll make any more. Yeah, that's so cool. We bought some of the T-Rex silver coins when they made those, but they were 20 Canadian dollars for a 20 Canadian dollar coin, so that was a little bit easier to swallow. <laughs> I love that they made it egg-shaped. Mm -hmm. It's like an egg-shaped coin. But then there's a picture of an egg on the coin, right? which isn't egg-shaped. It's, you know, a round egg, mm -hmm. not like an oblong egg like the coin itself. Right. <laughs> Plus it's hatching. You don't get the whole egg. Yeah. It's really cool, though. Yeah, I really like the concept. That Julius does good work. It does say that it's available in stock in a couple of brick-and-mortar stores in Ottawa and Winnipeg. So All right, you're you really in luck. want it. <laughs> if you live in the area or you're willing to go there. Yeah. Yeah. Just do it soon. Hopefully they're still in stock by the time this publishes and we're not spreading misinformation. Yes. But what do they always say on infomercials? Like act now. Only while supplies last. Yeah, that's something like that. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't get paid to feature this. No. Just want to make that clear. <laughs> <laughs> we just like coins. We do. We really like dinosaurs, especially. The Morrison Formation is by far the most famous Jurassic site in the United States, and I would argue in the world. Especially for sauropods. It does have some fantastic sauropods. They are spread across multiple states, and the Morrison Formation covers a good portion of western Colorado, and that's where this week's sponsor, the Colorado Northwestern Community College, or CNCC, comes in. Possibly the most famous sauropod from the Morrison Formation is Brachiosaurus, and the Morrison Formation also includes two other very famous dinosaurs, Allosaurus and Stegosaurus, 
And CNCC actually has an active dig site right now with all three of those amazing dinosaurs in one site. Nice. And even better, you can join them digging up those bones this summer. They're offering 16-day field programs where you can dig up bones with expert local paleontologists from the college. There's two scheduled digs. The first one's July 6th to July 20th. The second one is July 22nd to August 5th. But they are filling up, so be sure that you sign up now. You can go to cncc.edu slash dinodig to get all the details. Make sure you register online by May 31st, but do it even sooner because, again, those spots are going to be full soon. Again, that's cncc.edu slash dinodig. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone, world-class language learning for the world's best moms. It's almost Mother's Day after all. We're going to continue our story from last time about our trip to the Taipei Zoo in Taiwan. Yeah, we definitely recommend the Taipei Zoo in Taiwan. They have a really cool dinosaur museum featuring all the highlights like Deinonychus, T-Rex, Triceratops. So we had a really great time. And then we decided to take the train back and we had some more aha moments with our language learning journey. Yeah, we had to read some maps to navigate home. And of course, a lot of the things are translated into English, but not everything is translated. So it helps a lot if you know some of the local language. It's also very nice to be able to understand announcements when you're on public transportation. Yes, because things can change sometimes. And as a bonus, we were on the train at the time when everyone was coming home from work. So I got to practice even more by listening in on conversations. Not that I was trying, but we were elbow to elbow with people. So it was hard not to hear what they were saying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there wasn't anything too juicy. Mostly people talking about what they're going to have for dinner. But a lot of the early phrases I learned in Chinese had to do with food. So I felt pretty good about what I could understand. And Rosetta Stone can help you have your own proud moments. Yes, and the lessons are short, so you can fit them into your busy schedule. And for a limited time, you can get all of Rosetta Stone's 25 language courses for just $179, which is a huge discount off of the usual $399. And you can do that at rosettastone.com dino. Again, that's rosettastone.com dino. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Katadokus, which was a request from Dinosaur4602. So thanks. Again, not totally sure on the pronunciation of that, but we do our best. So it was a sauropod that lived in the late Jurassic in what is now Wyoming in the US in the Morrison Formation. And it looks similar to Diplodocus and Barosaurus. It's classified in Diplodocan A. Katadokus is estimated to be about 46 feet or 14 meters long. It lived earlier than Diplodocus, and it was smaller than Diplodocus, and it helps with our understanding of the evolution of Diplodocids. It was also found further north than other Diplodocids from the Morrison Formation, so it's possible that they moved south over time. Kaatodocus had a long whiplash tail, a long neck, an elongated head, and peg teeth, but there are subtle differences in the skull and vertebrae, like it had a U-shaped notch between the frontal bones. The skull looks like a juvenile Diplodocid. It had large eye openings and a rounded snout. And it had large teeth. It looked a little bit like it was smiling. It's nice that they found a skull. You don't always get that with sauropods. True. Like other sauropods, it probably used gastrolis to help it digest. It was described in 2012 by Emmanuel Schopp and Octavio Mateus. Barnum Brown, who his nickname I didn't realize was Mr. Bones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. Maybe we've mentioned it before and I forgot. I think so. He led a team from the American Museum of Natural History in 1934 on Barker Howe's land in... Well, near Shell, Wyoming. And in six months, they found about 4,000 fossils in an area that was 45 by 65 feet or 14 by 20 meters. Brown said that the site was, quote, an absolute knockout dinosaur treasure trove. 
And Brown had heard about the site back in 1932 from a local collector who'd found some large sauropod leg bones that were partially exposed. The expedition was funded by Sinclair Oil, and the finds from the trip became Sinclair's logo, that green sauropod. Oh, really? That's when that happened? Mm-hmm. I always wondered that. Now you know. <laughs> so Brown decided to study the fossils on location to figure out the relationships between individuals. Roland Bird suggested that they make a quarry chart and draw a map to show where each bone was found. In the quarry, they also found more sauropods and the first preserved skin tissues of sauropods, as well as ornithischians and allosaurus. It seemed that there was a group of sauropods there that were being stalked by carnivores, and then they ran into a watering hole that was a muddy death trap. Oh, that's quite the story they came up with. Yes. (laughs) It's a good one. Yeah. (laughs) After two months of making the map, they packed the bones into 140 cases and shipped them back to the museum. It weighed 69,000 pounds. However, not many of the fossils were prepared or put on display, and actually many of the fossils were destroyed in a warehouse fire in 1940. Oh, And then World War II happened, so that didn't help. And Brown never made it back to the quarry or got to study these bones. That's a bummer. Mm -hmm. Well, at least they had some good detailed maps that they did. So maybe some scientific value got preserved that way? Yes. We'll get to that in a minute. Oh. So in 1989, Hans Jacob Sieber, founder of the Swiss... Athal Dinosaur Museum, reopened the Howe Quarry and found more bones, including some neck vertebrae and a partial skull of a sauropod, which is at first thought to be Barosaurus or Diplodocus. And then in 2012, Shop and Mateus looked at the bones that were left from the quarry and at the American Museum of Natural History. And Shop said that, quote, Howe Quarry is the reason I became a paleontologist. And he's still working on the collection from the quarry and identifying bones based on Bird's Quarry map. So there nice. you go. Oh, they're even detailed enough that he can figure out which bones are which. That's really good. Mm-hmm. So they named specimen SMA0004 Kaatadokus cyberi. In 2013, Schmidt and others referred another partial skull from the Howe Quarry to Kaatadokus. And that specimen includes a skull and cervical vertebrae. So the type species is Kaatadokus cyberi. And the name Kaat means small in the crow. Absaroka language, which is one of the tribes in northern Wyoming, and the word docus alludes to diplodocus and the Greek word beam. Yeah, because diplodocus is double beam, but this is like a smaller one, so it's the small beam. I kind of like that. That's pretty cute. Yeah. And you know, some people pronounce diplodocus diplodocus, so that's how where that comes from. The species name, Cyberi, is in honor of Hans Jacob. Kirby Cyber, <laughs> who organized and funded the excavation and preparation and curation of the holotype. The SMA 0004 is the only specimen from Halquarry to be described and properly identified so far, but more analysis is needed to better understand diplodocid phylogeny and faunal changes in the Morrison formation. Shop and Mateus said that they believe the specimen was a subadult because of its small size and the skull features. And they also said that Kaatadokus, quote, is an example of Cope's rule, which predicts body size increase during evolution, end quote. Since disproven. So it may be an example of this trend that happens once in a while. <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't mean that it's a real rule. True. Well, like we mentioned earlier with the theropod that may have walked on all fours, so many dinosaurs lived yep. for so long. Some of them were getting bigger. Some of them were getting smaller. They're just, they're just <laughs> doing everything. Yep. So other dinosaurs that lived around the same time and place as Kaatadokus include Barosaurus, Stegosaurus, and Allosaurus. 
And you can see Kaatadokus in the sauropod exhibit on the fourth floor of the American Museum of Natural History. And there's fossil casts that are part of the juvenile sauropod in the Theodore Roosevelt Rotunda. Oh, yeah. Nice. And for the fun fact today, I decided I wanted to break down the different dromaeosaur sizes and then compare them to modern raptors. Because we always talk about like raptor dinosaurs, but everyone compares them all to like turkeys. They're like, yeah, it's turkey sized, <laughs> but turkeys aren't raptors and they don't really give you a good impression of what kind of like actual bird of prey they would be like. And I should mention too, so raptors were named for birds of prey way before we talked about them in association with dinosaurs and raptor, the modern birds include eagles, ospreys, hawks, vultures, falcons, owls, and a couple other types of birds. So it's a huge category of birds. I think it basically just means bird of prey. It's tons and tons of birds are raptors. Way more than we'll ever find of dinosaur, non-avian dinosaur raptors. So going through a list of some of the more well-known dromaeosaurs in increasing size, specifically by weight, because you can do size in all sorts of different dimensions. I'm going to start with Microraptor. It's about one kilogram or two pounds, and that's about the average size of a female peregrine falcon, which is the fastest animal on earth. It can go 200 miles an hour in a dive. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Microraptor definitely couldn't because it had those wings on its kind of hind legs, you know, those feathers probably would have slowed it down. Mm -hmm. It's definitely not diving at 200 miles an hour. Very few things are. Yes. <laughs> Up next are both Velociraptor and Dromaeosaurus. They're both estimated to be roughly 15 kilograms and 33 pounds. I think they're about six feet long. They're kind of the, on the smaller size. We always talk about how Velociraptor is way smaller than everybody thinks it is. And to compare it to a modern raptor, it's about the same weight as an Andean condor. I wasn't sure if I'd be able to find a bird that weighed 15 kilograms, <laughs> but this massive vulture from South America with an 11 foot wingspan, I think it's 10 foot, 10 inches, oh. but almost 11 feet. That thing weighs about the same as a Velociraptor or a Dromaeosaurus. That's pretty terrifying. Yep. But it's a vulture, so it's really mostly going after dead stuff. It's not really hunting. Sure. Plus it doesn't right have side. teeth. Yeah, but it's got quite a beak on it, those, yeah. those vultures. Up next... We got Deinonychus, and it weighed about 80 kilograms or 180 pounds, which is way bigger than Dromaeosaurus. I used to kind of think of Dromaeosaurus and Deinonychus kind of in the same realm, but really Deinonychus is much, much bigger. That's the one that basically the Velociraptors in Jurassic Park were supposed to be, but they made them even bigger. It's not as tall as a human, for example, even though it weighed about 180 pounds. And that's bigger than any modern raptor. There's nothing that even comes close. I think the biggest one might be like 40 pounds, depending on who you ask. So yeah, we're, we're way past. <laughs> way past anything out today. Up next, I'm putting in Dakota Raptor. There aren't any really good reconstructions I could find on its weight. There's all sorts of different numbers from different sources. But kind of combining them, I'm going to say it's probably under 1,000 pounds or under 450 kilograms. So it's getting pretty massive and taller than a human at that point, too. And then up last is like the biggest, baddest raptor, which is going to be Utah raptor. It's much more robust than Dakota raptor and probably longer, talking about over 20 feet long, likely at least 500 kilograms or 1,100 pounds. And I think we're going to find out more as the Utah raptor project 
gets through and we get some more like redescriptions of Utah Raptor coming out. But we've already seen some skeletals showing it as being more robust, which is why I'm saying over 500 kilograms is probably the range it's in. There are some other Dromaeosaurus too that I left out. These are kind of the main size points though that I, I thought of. Pretty good. Yeah. So Microraptor, size of a peregrine falcon, Velociraptor and Dromaeosaurus, about the same size and about the size of a big old vulture. <laughs> and then Deinonychus, you know, you're getting about the weight of a human. Dakota Raptor and Utah Raptor are just like... Giants. Stay away. <laughs> don't want anything to do with those animals. <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of I Know a Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes while you're at it. Maybe leave us a review. We like those. You can also join our community on Patreon at patreon.com slash inodino. Thanks for listening. Until next time. find cars like these on auto trader like that car riding right your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time well multitasking pro cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader